The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Today we're back in the book of Philippians, so if you have a Bible and you want to make your way there, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 this morning. The 12th and 13th verses of the second chapter of Philippians. I've been cold all morning, so I might heat it up in here a little bit. (laughs) 12th and 13th verses of the book of Philippians. Um, And in these verses, Paul makes a clear turn, a very, very clear turn in these verses towards how we act. So he's basically saying in these verses, in light of all this stuff I've been saying, this is how we act. So hear the words of the Apostle Paul here in verses 12 and 13 of the second chapter of Philippians. Paul says, therefore, a very important word there. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, you'll recall that Paul's in prison, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In this section of scripture today is set in the same context of a larger chunk of scripture we've been dealing with with some weeks for some weeks here is set in a larger chunk of scripture the way that I see it verse 27 sort of begins this almost parenthetical statement within the verses here verse uh, 27 of chapter 1 begins kind of this parenthetical statement that I've been arguing for for a number of weeks here if you'll recall verse 27 of chapter 1 says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You'll remember the content and movement of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That verse, verse 27 of chapter 1 there, it might be the thesis of the entire book of Philippians in some ways. I've tried to articulate in my own words over the first several sermons of this what I've been arguing week, uh, for weeks now. There's a challenge or a mission that Paul unfolds in this letter, and it's loyalty to the content and the movement of the gospel. We want to be serious as Christians. We want to be serious about the content of the gospel. What is the gospel? We want to be serious about what makes up the gospel. We also want to be serious about the movement of the gospel, the movement of the gospel in this community, in this city. And as we will see at the end of this service when I bring the folks up from Ethiopia, this is a move to be serious about the movement of the gospel amongst the nations. So we want to be content and movement of the gospel people. The content and the movement of the gospel, it gives you purpose in this life. That's the key statement. That's the key statement of the entire book. And I've derived that right from verse 27 of the first chapter. And you'll recall there are two important keys to being effective at this challenge that Paul gives us, a life worthy of the gospel. It's to have humility and unity. To be effective at this mission, Paul tells us that unity and humility are necessary. And so all of that comes directly from verse 27 there. And 27 begins this parenthetical, this 
almost big parentheses in the middle of the book the way that I see it. And so we'll take note because we want to we see the big picture when you read the Bible. Sometimes we have this tendency to parachute into verses and just read these one verses. That's okay in some ways. But I'm trying to give you the big picture of what happens in these, ver- in these uh, books, in these letters that Paul is writing. And so really verses, if you want to mark this, if you're a student of the word and you want to know this, I see that verses 127, chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through 218 is one big argument by Paul. 127 through 218, if you read it together, it's one long argument by Paul, and it's this big idea. So Paul, in verse 27, he gives you the mission, loyalty to the content and movement of the gospel. You're to live lives worthy of the gospel. Then he takes you right to the keys to be being effective at this mission, unity and humility. We've been talking about that. And then he gives you the means by which you are to fulfill the mission, which was the last two sermons I preached on, Jesus Christ and his work, the Trinitarian work of salvation. Remember the Trinity we talked about earlier? Jesus is not only the model, but he also empowers you to live this out. This is a reality for you. That's in part why Paul always goes to Jesus. And then today in verses 12 and 13, and then next week, Lord willing, in verses 14 through 18, we're going to see what humility lived out means. I've been telling you that humility is when you live other-focused, when you live in selfless love. But these verses, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of what does it look like to live out humility. The Bible is so concerned about the relationships between fellow Christians. The Bible, this is so important for you. The Bible is concerned about your relationships outside of the church. But the Bible is so concerned about your relationships inside the church. And he's speaking to a church here. This letter is written to a church, and Paul is concerned about that. Today, Paul turns back to really a final piece of exhortation in the context of unity and humility, these keys to our effectiveness. And he opens our text this morning in in a turn to application. You've heard this a million times, that word, therefore, it's a turn to application or exhortation. And I've told you this a million times over and over and over again. If you don't ever learn anything from me, you should learn when you read Paul. Paul's always theology, and then he's always application. Doctrine, theology, application. And then he'll go off into Jesus sometimes, which he did last week. You'll see is these beautiful moves, but that's the rhythm of, pa- of Paul. And so you see in verse 12 here, he says, Therefore, my beloved, it's almost as Paul is saying when that sentence right there, what I want you to grasp if you want to, if you want to jot this down or hold on to it. When he says, Therefore, my beloved, he's almost saying that in my words, when I read this based upon the larger argument I've been giving you, he's saying, If you are for the content and movement of the gospel, if you're for the content and movement of the gospel and you want unity and humility to be successful at the content and movement of the gospel, then let me tell you how to do it. Let me tell you how to act. That's basically what he's saying here. And so here are the words again. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you always have obeyed, it's very plain words in here, but we're going to get into some nuances for it. He's saying, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. These are famous words, but there's, when you read this up front, you're thinking, what is going on in here? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So immediately when you read this, if you read this this week, immediately if you're just commonly reading through this, there sounds like there's a contradiction in this, right? If you think about it, it almost appears at face value when you read this, you hear this almost apparent contradiction in the text. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then right after that, he says, for it's God who works in you. Right? 
So you're reading this and you're thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute, is it, is it me that works out my own salvation or is it God that does it? How does it work? I thought salvation was free because of grace. What in the world is Paul talking about here? We walk, we talk about all the time about justification by faith apart from works. So what's the deal? What's going on in here? And so this is where I land on it. There's some different interpretations on this, but this is where I land. There's a lot of stuff that I don't have time to explain to you. So some of you just have to take it face value. But my interpretation of this passage is that Paul is not talking about personal salvation. He's not talking about personal salvation in this. In other words, because of the larger context that we know about Paul's theology, you've got to think about Paul. When you read Paul, he wrote other stuff in the Bible. Paul, because of what we know about Romans and Galatians, this passage is not speaking about individual salvation. Let me put it in common layman terms here. It's not talking to you about how to get saved. Okay? It's not telling you how to get saved. It's talking about living out salvation. Living out your faith. Remember, I told you that 127 starts this larger block, so you read things in context with the argument of Paul here. And it's so important that you get the big ideas from 127 and you carry that with you as you do. Let's go back. I'll rewind on it. Paul gives us the mission, loyalty to the content and the movement of the gospel. He gives you the keys to being effective at that, humility and unity, and then he gives you the means to fulfill it, Jesus Christ. Christ. And then today when he says working out your own your salvation is in that context, context that you have to think about it and Paul is not talking about salvation here he's talking about outworking of your salvation in a believing community the outworking of your salvation in a believing community or this church that he's writing to so what does it mean what does it mean to really be saved in other words to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is a statement about obedience it's a statement about obedience, not legalism. We've been talking about this over and over and over again. If you're around me, we're grace-based people. You're to obey. You're supposed to have obeying faith, but ultimately you've got to hold the gospel right here. You remember that? I'm telling you all the time, hold the gospel close. Hold it close because we're broken people. And so you know all of that. And so how do I know all of that, Britt? How do I know that, that, that the conclusion about all of this is that working out of your own salvation is first, it's the context. It's the context. Read the Bible in context. But it's also this phrase that he uses right here, fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he caveats it. He just doesn't say work out your own salvation. He says with fear and trembling. But what's so important about this is this is an Old Testament phrase. Fear and trembling. You realize the writers of the New Testament, they knew the Old Testament. When they wrote the Old New Testament, when Paul knew, wrote this letter, he knows the Old Testament. He uses an Old Testament phrase here. And this Old Testament phrase, fear and trembling, I'm trying to teach you how to read the Bible here. This Old Testament phrase, there's multiple senses to fear and trembling in the Old Testament. There's multiple senses to it. But in general, this phrase, it refers to a fatherly fear. This old dead guy, John Bunyan, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote this if you want to go read it, it's this really good treatise on this. It's called The Fear of God, and he breaks all of this down, but there's multiple senses in which we fear God. The fear and trembling that Paul uses here, he's leaning on the Old Testament, and he's leaning on this filio fear, this fatherly fear. So it's tied to obedience. It's tied to reverence. Think about your relationship with your father. If you had a father that was, that, that, that was around, it's a, it's a type of submission tied to this. Somebody has to be in charge, and this is what, things, this is what Paul's referencing here. So it's very, this, this reference to fear and trembling is very closely tied to obedience. 
very closely tied to obedience. He almost, in some ways, could have used the same word, so there's a thin line in it. It's almost like he could have said, work out your salvation with obedience. Live out your salvation with obedience. So Paul is affirming there's a human aspect, there's a human aspect subsequent to God redeeming you, right? There's a human aspect to it. There's a level of obedience to your faith, obeying faith. It has to be. Remember justification, sanctification sermon. Sanctification is a manifestation of your justification. I would argue if you are not sanctifying, you might have to look back and question the justification. Are you even redeemed? These things go hand in hand. So there's really a lot going on here. And then there's a divine working to it. Look at the next thing he uses here. So there's a divine aspect to it. He says, for God is working, for it is God who works in you. So that's what I'm talking about this morning. This This passage is not necessarily talking about individual salvation. It's talking about the outworking of your salvation. And we know that because of the context that Paul argues this in and because of the Old Testament phrase, fear and trembling which he uses, which he pulls from the Old Testament in order to enforce this idea of obedience. So here's the deal. So we're supposed to obey. All right, Britt, let's get serious about it. Let's take it to another level here. So we're supposed to obey, and then Paul turns right around and says, God works all of this. (laughs) So we're supposed to obey. We're supposed to be doing this. We're supposed to be living out the salvation, living out our faith in this. But then Paul turns right back around and says, God does it. So what is it, Britt? So is it me that obeys, or is it God that does it? Do I obey or is it God that does it? And so there's an aspect in this to human responsibility and divine sovereignty. There's two things involved in this passage, right? And I need some answers, Britt. <laughs> I need some answers, man. Is it God or is it me? Who's responsible for all this stuff? I need some answers. But in all seriousness, the answer to it is both. Are you responsible or is God sovereign? Yes. Both. That's the answer to the question. There are gaps. There, there, there. I could talk about this all the time. I'll tell you what I'm, I, when I wrote this, I thought, I'm going to say that, say a prayer and leave <laughs> and let you figure it out. And so I'll give you a book, give you a book and let you figure it out. Here's the dirty secret. I, my mind goes all over the place sometimes. Pastors, when they give you books, it's because they don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> so when you ask a pastor something and they say, hey, read this book, that's quote for, I don't really even know what's going on. So this guy knows what's going on. But anyway, so in all seriousness, in all jokes aside, we could draw our eyeballs out with the discussion on divine sovereignty or or human responsibility and what you need to know up front is there are gaps in your ability to comprehend this stuff there just there just is there are gaps in your ability to comprehend this and if you don't believe me i'll let you read some old dead guys that still didn't figure this out and they got they're way smarter than i am okay so you just gonna have to live with tensions in your life and so here's the deal Here are things I know about the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Who is it that does it, Britt? Is it me or God? Here's some things that I know about this. I'm going to give you some truths about it. This is the first thing I know. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, the sequence of how you think about this relationship is important. Sequence. The sequence matters. This is what I mean by this. God must first work before man can work. Understand? God must first work before man can work. Sequence. Everything. Sequence is it. In other words, God does not work after you. He works before you. (laughs) 
It's just the way it is. He is an enabler. He is an enabler. There's sequence to all of this stuff. So you've got to keep that in perspective. Here's a clear statement by this guy that you don't care about anymore, but this is, I just thought this was a good statement about it. Is uh, I think this guy's actually alive. This is actually a live guy. But anyway, he says, <laughs> I very rarely quote men that are living. But anyway, he says, man can and must work because God has worked or is working. Sequence. Keep it in sequence. If you don't keep it in sequence, you'll get out of bounds. I was in a meeting with someone a while back about, I, taught, I actually, believe it or not, I have conversations with other people about their churches. <laughs> Sometimes you form, uh, or as a consultant in some ways, but I was, I've told this to leadership here as well, but you, in church leadership, the way it works, you have to move a piece and then you just wait on God. And it doesn't quite work like that in business, does it? (laughs) But in the kingdom of God, you just move a piece and then God has to work. And then you move a piece and then God has to work. That's what I'm saying here. And so sometimes sometimes he'll let you move fast. I'm trying to give, just think about your individual life. Don't think about the church here. Think about your individual life. Sometimes he'll let you move fast. Sometimes, but you've seen it. Boom, 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 boom. He'll unlock these things and you can run. And then other times, it's just a waiting game. And it's miserable for people like me. As you can see, I got a lot of energy. I want to move fast. But anyway, so it's like sometimes he does it this way. And so you can only work. Work because God has worked, you're dependent upon His sovereignty. That's one, point one A I know about divine human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Their sequence matters. The sequence matters in it. This is the second thing I know about this relationship. There's a lot that I don't know about this relationship, but I'm giving you some things I do know. I hope this will be helpful. We have to hold human responsibility. This is incredibly important. You have to hold divine sovereignty and human responsibility side by side the way the Bible does. Okay? The Bible has this tension with this. The Bible doesn't clarify everything about this. This is what I mean. The Bible is not contradictory. Okay? The Bible does not contradict its statements. In other words, if there's something that seems contradictory to you in the Bible, it's your problem. (laughs) It's not God's problem. And there are tensions in the Bible. There are things that we just don't know. And so we have to deal with this this tension, this, this, uh, is it God or Brit? Is it God or man? We have to deal with this the way Bi- the Bible does. And the Bible deals with it this way. It, it, you, the Bible doesn't con- confuse the two. There's absolute affirmations in the Bible that, are, that God is completely sovereign. There's affirmations of that. We see it in the Bible. There are also affirmations in the Bible that humans are responsible for their obedience or lack thereof. Both of those things exist in the Bible. How that works out, people have been trying to figure it out for 2,000 years. But here's the thing. God's sovereignty, there's a balance to that. And so we must do everything we can to make sure we hold these two truths in our lives the way it is done by the, in the lives of the people in the Bible. You understand that? So the, these things work out in the Bible, and so we can never, get, we can never do something with these, this tension that the Bible doesn't do. For example, I wrote this down. It's simple. God's sovereignty, it never functions in Scripture as fatalism. It never functions as fatalism. In other words, it never functions as it's all just planned out and we don't have to do anything but just hang out. It never functions that way. Nowhere in the Bible does it function that way. It doesn't function as fatalism. Here's another important thing. God's sovereignty, it never functions. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever function to lessen an evangelical commitment. Never. So I have to deal with that, right? It never does that. It never allows you to be indifferent about other salvation. Nowhere in the Bible does God's sovereignty allow you to be indifferent about other people's salvation. 
These are truths. This is in the Bible. It never, it never allows you to be indifferent about your morality. It never allows you to be in a church that just chills. That's what we've been talking about. Paul's writing a letter here trying to tell these people to move the content and movement of the gospel. So the Bible never does that. It never deals with God's sovereignty in that way. God's sovereignty does function in, it does function in Scripture to ensure that he will effectually call you to himself. I believe the Bible that is clear that salvation's unto God. I believe that. That's, that's my position on it. And he utilizes humans as the instrumentalities of grace. By his own good pleasure, he has used you and I to spread the gospel to people. That's the reality of it. I mean, I, I thought about this the other day. God doesn't need me to preach. He doesn't. He could do this without me. He could have done it without Charles Spurgeon. He could have done it without Billy Graham. He could have done it with all of these people. It's by his own good pleasure. He's no respecter of man is what I'm telling you. He's indifferent. He, I, I, this is it's grace to me that I get to stand up and do this. So we want to hold that in balance. And so God's fought, uh, sovereignty in Scripture never functions as fatalism. It never functions, functions as, as, as fatalism, but it does function to encourage and assure your preservation as children. Remember the sermon preservation that we talked about. And so then that's what the Bible does at very broadly at 60,000 feet with God's sovereignty. And then human responsibility is in the Bible. There's an aspect of human responsibility in the Bible. And the Bible never functions to create a God that's contingent upon you. That's the reality of it. The Bible never creates, a, it doesn't speak of a God that's a contingent upon bread. <laughs> God's, I've told you this before, God's not up there going, come on bread, come on bread, come on bread, come on He's not up there doing that. He's not contingent upon me. I'm nobody to him. He loves me. He'll be, he's willing to use me as long as I'm faithful, but he's not contingent upon me. And so the exhortations like the one we see this morning, they, they function to increase our responsibility to give us urgency to address our Christian seriousness. That's the way human responsibility is in the Bible. There's a responsibility we have. We have to live with urgency. We have to be serious. God's resources, God's resources, think about this, they never come to an end of themselves. God's resources never come to an end, upon, of, an end of themselves where, where he's dependent upon man. Because. Everybody's like, I don't know about this, Brett. <laughs> God does, he doesn't need me to preach. It's just the way it is. Here's the third thing I know about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. True salvation, it'll manifest itself in your life with works. I believe that. I believe that if you have come to faith, if God has redeemed you, it will manifest itself in your life with good works or this something called holy practice. Let me explain this to you. I like old dead people. There's this old dead guy that I've done a lot of work on named Richard Furman. Richard Furman was the pastor of First Baptist Charleston after the American Revolution. Richard Furman was the first president of the Triennial Convention, which ultimately turned into the Southern Baptist Convention. He lived in this town for a long time. He was here for, at First Baptist Charleston. He wrote a lot of stuff. He, Furman was huge on education. He was the first, uh, he, was, he was really the first person, him and this other guy that was a pastor at First Baptist Charleston were the, really the first Baptist to come out and say, hey, you know, we really need some education in this thing. And so they developed this whole, really instrumental in, in education. These two men, Oliver Hart and Richard Furman, they developed the Charleston Baptist Association, which is still around. The Charleston Baptist Association is your local Baptist Association. They were 
instrumental in developing that. I'm very close friends with the gentleman that runs that now. Anyway, when Richard Furman, he was the moderator of the Charleston Baptist Association, which just means that he was the guy that they, they bring these pastors in, they let them be moderators. That's just a fancy word for saying he was over the meetings, the Baptist Association meetings. He preached the sermons at the meetings, all of these sorts of things. And so he was the moderator there in the early 1800s. He did it for a lot of years and he wrote these things called circular letters, okay? So in that time, you actually had to write things down. You couldn't send emails. And so he wrote these things called letters and they put them in the minutes, right? And in these circular letters, he would address these theological issues. Because if you live in the 1800s, you just can't get online and Google Wayne Grudem, right? I mean, you have to actually, you can't be a theologian. You actually have to actually go to the guy that's trained to do it. But anyway, so it's like he, they, he would print these letters out. And so he wrote this circular letter in 1823 to the churches in Charleston. I've actually held the letter in my hand, 1823. I've held the actual letter in my hand. I'm telling you, when I tell you I'm a, I'm a geek, I really am. So anyway, I actually held the letter in my hand and read it. And he wrote, he wrote on this, he wrote during this time, he wrote on something called true religion or vital faith. And Furman was dealing with really kind of the remnants of the second great awakening during this time. And he, there was a revival going on in some ways. And he's having to deal with, are these people actually coming to faith? Because he's traveling all over the state and preaching and there's people coming to faith all over the place in these revivals. And he's saying, are these people really regenerate? Have they actually come to faith? And so he's asking this question, what is vital faith? And so vital faith to him is two things. He gives us two things in it. He says vital faith is holiness of heart and holy practice. That's how you know if someone has vital faith, if they have true religion. And so the primary evidence of vital faith, according to Furman, is the heart, wherein one, this is what he writes. This is a beautiful statement. He says, the primary evidence of vital faith, remember, true salvation, it has works. He says, the primary evidence of vital faith is in the heart, wherein love of the divine character or delight in God, which induces the soul to seek its supreme happiness in him. In other words, if you have true salvation, your soul will find happiness in God and his perfection. And you'll love him and his rules. This is holiness of heart. No one will have to browbeat you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's all he's saying in that. And then he says, if a man possesses holiness in the heart, the proper evidence of that holiness, he will produce good works. The natural tendency of a holy heart. These good works, they manifest themselves in a holy disposition for the love of God's glory, God's word, the general exercise of Christian passion practice. If you have true salvation, you will find happiness in God, holiness of heart, and you'll delight in doing the right thing. You'll work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the third thing I know about the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Here's number four. There's a danger. This, you, need to, you need to know this in all theological truths. Just be aware of this. You need to have intellectual humility. And what I mean by that is there is a danger in oversimplifying things sometimes. You need to understand this. Sometimes guys get up here where I do and they try to oversimplify things so everybody can understand it and there's a danger in it. And what you have to do is you have to realize you have to have humility like I, I try to have humility when I come to this stuff and say, I don't know everything, to realize that you don't deserve all the answers. You just don't deserve all the answers. And sometimes you have to live with tension in things. And so all I can tell you is that I don't want to do anything more or less with divine sovereignty or human responsibility than the Bible does. And there's places and things that I don't understand. And that's just the place I have to live. So those are the four things that I know about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And so here's the question for us. All of this is great, Britt. 
All this stuff is great, man, and all this stuff is wonderful. I appreciate you teaching us all this stuff, but we always come back to this question, what am I to do with this stuff? What am I supposed to do with this? How shall I then live? So we've got to be obedient. We have to live out our salvation in the context of Christian community through the power of God. We're called to be serious about the content and movement of the gospel in our lives, alive, worthy of the gospel. Paul tells us that happens by way of our own responsibility and God working through us. So there's divine and human in it. But at the end of the day, you have to make decisions, right? Right? You have to make decisions. But here, is the, but here is maybe the most, when I was thinking about this, the most consuming question that I deal with as a pastor, that I deal with individually with myself, I think it's probably the most consuming question in your life. You just have never, have never had anybody tell you that it is, is this, is what is God's will and what is my part in it? If I'm supposed to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling, am I supposed to live in Christian community, live out my salvation in Christian community, then I've got to know what does God want me to do and why does he want me to do that? And so it's kind of messy, right? It's kind of messy. You, yeah, at some level, you've got to make decisions on what you actually do in the Christian faith. We don't live the Christian faith in our hills. There's a lot of directive given to us in Scripture, but there's a lot of gray area, right? Things are muddy. They're not clear all the time. What is the right thing to do? And so it's messy out there. Things are cloudy. All the time things are cloudy. And we're always trying to determine what is the will of God? What should I do? How do I work this out? What's the right thing to do in this situation? What's my responsibility as a human? And I don't want to get out in front of God. Aren't these questions you ask yourself? I don't want to get in front of God, but what am I supposed to do? And when am I supposed to do it? And how am I supposed to do it? So these are the, this is kind of the mess we live in on here. So every, I think everybody, if they're honest with themselves, probably know what I'm talking about here. The, the Christian journey in large parts of questions is a large part of this question. How, how and when do you, quote, take things into your own hands? Right? When do you do that? And how do you know? And so there's human responsibility versus divine sovereignty. It works it out in your life. So here, here is the major questions, is, and here's the answer for it. The answer is Christian discernment. The answer is Christian discernment. It's how you make these decisions in your life. It's a major doctrine to, to us. Christian discernment is knowing God's will what God's will is for you in any given situation and wisely making a move or taking the step. Christian discernment. How do you know what to do? Christian discernment. Christian discernment is knowing what God's will is within any given situation and wisely making a move or taking a step. But how do we gain Christian discernment? How do you get this? I'm trying to be helpful to you this morning. So here's, here's, here's the steps to discerning. I've got four here. And these are, I think these are biblical. The, the first is this. The first step to Christian discernment is you've got to wake up and be sober about your situation. You've got to be sober about where you're at. In other words, you've you got, you got to say, what is the reality of the situation I'm in? And I, this is the way I've seen it. I'm just going to keep it real with you this morning. I've, I see typically older people, they're, they downplay things. If you've been around a long time, you've seen a lot, you've been through some stuff, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that's an issue, but you kind of say, you know, I mean, everything's a little bit like it really ain't that bad. And then younger people, I deal with this with younger people all the time, is the earth is falling, right? It's like, listen, my girlfriend broke up with me, and it's over, man. And I'm like, 
you're 16. You just hang on, man. You know what I mean? And so there's something in the middle of all that, right? But you've got to be sober about where you're at. The first step to discernment is you've got to sober up about your circumstances. I do consulting for a company outside of here, another job outside of here. And I tell people all the time, consulting is telling people what they don't want to hear and they thank you for it later. So I have to go in and get people to sober up about the situation. I have to do that. And so that's the reality of it. The first step of Christian discernment is you've got to get before God and you've got to get in your situation. You've got to say, where am I at? And how do I sober up about where I'm at? And am I being the old person that's saying, you know, it really is not that bad. Everybody needs to chill out. Or am I being the 16-year-old that's going off the deep end because my girlfriend broke up with me? There's some balance in there. And so you got the first step to Christian discernment is you've got to wake up and smell the roses. The next thing to this, and this is number two, this is number two, but it's not number two in secrets. The number one thing is number two here is that you got to say, what does the Bible say about it? Most important thing here, what does the Bible say about it? And you got to find, you got to find out somewhere, how does the Bible speak into this situation? Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes there's general principles around it, but sometimes the Bible's not going to tell you clearly what to do. I've been, I've been, there's a lot of things, a lot of things that gets clear on, but sometimes it doesn't. And so you need to go find somebody that knows something about the Bible and can tell you how does the Bible speak into this. Step number one, sober up, but really step number one, the major step is what does the Bible say about this? We try to pull everything through the lens of the Bible. I'm a Bible guy. This is important to me. So pull it through the Bible. What does the Bible say about it? Then step number three, how do you have Christian discernment? Is you have got to let people speak into your decisions. You gotta let people speak into your decisions. People that are smarter than you, most importantly, people that will tell you the truth. You've got to have people in your life that love God that will tell you the truth. And you've got to let them speak into it. And so you need to go find people that have made good decisions. If you're trying to make, some, if you're trying to make a financial decision and you're trying to discern what God does, go find somebody that's made some good financial decisions. Go find somebody that has done well for themselves in this world in that arena and go humble yourself and go talk to them. Find them. See how they did it. Ask them questions. Don't be, don't be too prideful to do that. I'm, just, I'm trying to be helpful to you this morning. There, there's a lot that you can learn from every decision I've ever made in my life. I go take counsel on it. And one of the major things I try to take counsel on is I try to find people that aren't emotionally attached to my situation. They've never been emotionally attached to my situation. I can go talk to them and they can just give me this fresh view on things. This is Christian discernment. Make sure they love Jesus. <laughs> I mean, make sure they have some relation to the church. But this is how Christian discernment is. It's like I told, it's, so much stuff goes through my mind up here. But my wife and I have been talking about coronavirus lately. And I've been telling her, I was like, I, I have a buddy of mine that I just spent some time with a few weeks ago. He works in cardiology. And I asked him, I said, man, you, all the time you probably get people come in your office and self-diagnose, don't you? And he was like, man, the day that Google was born, it ruined my life. Because <laughs> everybody that comes in is a medical professional, right? And it's like, they all, and he's like, I'm just going, well, why are you even in here, man? You know, like you Googled it, you're the expert. But anyway, so I, I, I'm just, I told Megan, I was like, I feel bad as sometimes like I, I, I feel the pain sometimes of my medical professionals because they, everybody that walks in your office has been on WebMD and they think you're in the business with Big Farm and they're flying you to the Maldives, Maldives to like do backroom deals with big pharmacy companies and everything else because you prescribe Tamiflu to them. So anyway, it's like all this stuff is going on when you deal with people. And so what I'm saying is, is all that jokes aside, what I'm saying to you is go take some counsel from people that are godly. How do you discern things? You 
you want to pull it through the lens of the Bible. You've got to sober up where you're at. And then the second thing is you need to take counsel from it. And then the fourth thing here is, does it make sense? Does it make sense? There's a, there's a piece of experience and reason involved in this. Does it make sense? Is it logical? I'm telling you, the Christian journey, it's not this mystical, God dangling you over a barrel, just waffle in self-misery, all this sort of stuff kind of thing. Is the common sense. There's not this mystical understanding of God. I tell folks all the time, I lean on God's providence when making discernment. Think about what God's done. Is he putting pieces around you? There's God's providence in that. But at the same time, don't read the tea leaves. Be careful interpreting providence. Is it logical? Does it make sense? A lot of people look for all these signs, all these mystical experiences. I'm not making fun of this. I mean, you know, if, I, if I'm sitting on my couch and I'm thinking about my ex-girlfriend and the doorbell rings by the FedEx guy, that means that maybe my ex-girlfriend is about to come back and get back with me. Maybe, she's gonna, maybe God's telling me she's going to show up tomorrow. And I'm like, I have no idea what that means. That's not, that is not logical, man. We don't live in that world with the Bible. And so it's, it doesn't make sense. I love philosophy. I love theology. I love thinking. But man, I'm a practical guy. I'm a common sense guy at heart. And so does it make sense? Is it even make any sense what you're doing? How do you discern the will of God? Be sober about where you're at. Find out what the Bible says about it. Big, big deal. Find out what the Bible says about it. Don't argue with the Bible. Just do it. Take some counsel from godly people that are outside of the situation and figure out does it make sense. I'm trying to be helpful. How do you live out your salvation with fear and trembling? Christian discernment. You've got to make decisions. You've got to make decisions. Christian discernment, I think, is one of the biggest elements of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work at this. Work at Christian discernment. It takes practice. It just might not come to you. All for the content and the movement of the gospel. All for unity and humility. May the God who stands over us in full control give us strength to carefully live out the Christian faith in our church and community through the power of God for his will and good pleasure. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Eternal Father, I'm thankful to you for the truths of Scripture. I um, I pray that we are able to take this, Father, the the tensions that live in the Bible. There are things that we can't explain, God, and so we lean upon you. And maybe most importantly, Father, where we wait on, maybe we people that wait on you to work before we work, God, because we know it's done in vain. There's things that I just can't explain in this, Father. There's truths that I can't mine out, God, and I don't have all the answers. And so I just humbly submit to you um, that you're a God who creates and you're ordains and um, you've, given us, you've given us scripture, God, so we can even get a glimpse into what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. So I pray that we be people that live lives through the scripture for your glory and we do it all for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.